A unique situation continues as we wait for a final result in last week's provincial election. To chat about the latest twists and turns, Global BC's Keith Baldry and the Vancouver Sun's Vaughn Palmer join me. Later in the show, we talk a variety of political issues with pundits Bill Thielman and Elise Hill. This is Radio NL's Inside Politics. Here's NL News Director Shane Woodford. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in. Beautiful morning here in Kamloops. Blue sky, sunshine, starting to heat up finally. My pleasure to be joined by Keith Baldry and Vaughn Palmer on our Edge of the Ledge segment. Gentlemen, welcome. Good morning, Shane. We still don't know what's going to happen yeah, next week. I was about to ask you, have you heard yet who's won the election? I'm in the. Uh, I'm we're working on it. We're working <laughs> on it. We're going to count those ballots frantically starting Monday, but yeah. it might be Wednesday, might be the end of the week, I the talked following to, week. I talked to Elections BC yesterday, just kind of get uh, briefed on the process, and Andrew Watson over there tells me, uh, as you alluded to there, Vaughn, uh, there are no holiday Monday for, for people counting votes. They start on the Monday. Uh, the goal is to be finished by Wednesday, with the one caveat being the two riding recounts because that adds a whole other layer of process uh, but ideally this whole thing will have in some way shape or form will have a final result on Wednesday but the question now is does it change what's on the table uh, Keith well yeah it, it all comes down to that uh, 44th seat if the Liberals can secure it in Courtney Comox or even in Maple Ridge Mission that would give them a, a bare majority but at least a, a functioning majority uh, but uh, we, and we might actually have a, a semblance of the results before Wednesday because the parties are going to have scrutineers in those mm. uh, in those counting rooms and starting on Monday. So by Tuesday, they may have a sense of where these uh, some of these writings are headed. But um, everything is up in the air as far as I can determine. And, and increasingly, it sounds like Andrew Weaver, uh, just judging by his comments to reporters and just some offhand remarks, I just can't see him siding with the BC Liberals. Mm the end of the day. I think he's going with the NDP. He's throwing the Liberals under the bus on a number of issues in that scrum we had with them yeah. uh, a couple of days ago. I just I just can't really see him going with the BC Liberals uh, for a number of reasons. Before we dive into Andrew Weaver, uh, Vaughn, uh, although the both parties, Christy Clark, John Horgan, are putting a brave face on it, at least publicly, uh, I don't know about your sources, but mine behind the scenes are, are telling me that the, the belief is that it's going to be a stand pat. We're not going to see any result change here. Is that what you're hearing or no? Uh, I honestly don't know. With nine votes, it's hard to say. Also, you know, I know Elections BC is going to do the best possible job to get there by Wednesday, but there's still an opening after that for judicial recounts and court challenges if you end up with a account that's so close it needs to be revisited again. So, uh, yeah, I hope uh, they're right that we'll know Wednesday so the parties can get on with deciding, you know, whether they want a partnership in the House or not. But uh, it really is still up in the air, Shane. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, Andrew Weaver, who is holding the balance of power here uh, and has had uh, probably a more relaxing week than the other two leaders, uh, really came out strong, as, as Keith, you alluded to a minute ago. Uh, he called the Trans Mountain Pipeline uh, irresponsible, called Site C reckless, uh, flat out said the BC Liberals have a lot of ground to make up here as far as kind of aligning with the Greens. And uh, you're obviously reading that as he's skewing one way in, instead of the other. Oh, yeah. I, I, again, I don't see the Liberals abandoning, for, just for example, the uh, 
the, the construction of the Site C Dam. That's just not, not on the Liberals' watch. The Liberals have to be careful. Uh, keep in mind, they won the, the, the plurality of the popular vote. I mean, they did win the most seats. They did win the most votes. They can't start abandoning their base just to placate mm. the Weaver. They can't suddenly say no to LNG, no to Kinder Morgan, no to Site C. That's, that's, that's not what they're about. So I think the Liberals are it's starting to dawn on, I think, a few of them that it might not be the worst thing in the world to sit outside of government for uh, probably a short period of time uh, if, if it means hanging on to those positions of building Site C, building LNG, uh, supporting the Kinder Morgan pipeline, if it means hanging on to their base with the expectation that if the Liberals or if the NDP and the Greens were to merge and suddenly form government, there's no guarantee that government's going to last for a long period of time. And when it comes to fighting another election, there's only one party that has the money to do that right now, and that's yep. DC Liberals. The other two are broke. They're in no position to wage another war here. So the Liberals, I think are starting to take a long-term view rather than a short-term one. Shane, we also got a clue this week that John Horgan is getting ready to break his first election promise, which is always a sign you're trying to make a deal. The Liberal, the New Democrats promised they would bring in electoral reform only after a referendum yeah. where British Columbians would be given a chance to vote on whether or not they wanted to change the electoral system. Yep. Horgan indicated yesterday that he might be open to negotiation on that, which, of course, is what Andrew Weaver wants. Weaver wants, uh, on the strength of a massive 17% of the electorate, he wants to change the electoral system without a referendum, and it sounds as if Horgan is prepared to give him that. Yeah, that's an interesting stance to take. Uh, as far as the long-term view for the BC Liberals, Keith, to go back to that, does does that long-term picture, I mean, at least in the short term, there's no luxury here for a leadership convention, but does the long-term future for the BC Liberals include Christy Clark if they're out of government? Well, that, that, that's a good question. I think uh, Christy Clark can argue she won the most seats and the most votes, and why should she go anywhere? On the other hand, she is a lightning rod and a polarizing figure. Uh, but I think she's certainly short-term, uh, has the uh, the argument that she remains leader, even in opposition. But as time goes on, uh, we'll see if, uh, and I'm sure the Liberals will be doing some in pretty intense internal polling to see if she is the reason that they can't build on that 41%. But if she spends some time in opposition, I think that starts to soften her image and soften her, uh, uh, you know, her negatives with, with the voters. But, I mean, we're talking of a lot of what-ifs here, but... Mm. I think uh, she can buy some time uh, in opposition. Four years from now, uh, who's to say? But if uh, the NDP and the Greens go into into government here, I don't think that's a long-term arrangement. I think uh, they're prone to some sort of blow-up. And even if they go into government, they could have a 44-seat majority as well, which is a very tough thing to pull off in the House on a day-to-day basis in terms of making that place work. So uh, we're into all sorts of fascinating scenarios here, not the least of which is the question of Christy Clark's leadership, but I think short-term, she's not going anywhere. All right, Vaughn, what's your read on Clark's future? Yeah, I think uh, Keith's right about that. If the Liberals are not going to be going into government, uh, if the Greens and the NDP form a coalition of some sort, I think the uh, liberal reaction will be, all right, let's see if you can manage this thing. Uh, 44 to 43 for the Greens and New Democrats is tough to manage, too. They have to come up with a speaker. They have to win the votes in the House. They have to implement their promises, including a bunch of tax increases. Uh, they have to deal with the economy. Uh, if Weaver has his way, uh, try this one. Uh, John Horgan has to hand out 
2,000 layoff notices at Site C mm-hmm. and lay off the entire workforce in a part of the province that's struggling. So uh, I can see Clark sitting there saying, okay, let's see how you do. Now, I also agree with something else Keith said, which is if this green NDP coalition, or whatever we end up calling it, survives two or three years, then I think at that point the Liberals maybe do look at leadership change. I think their initial response would be, let's give this thing a few months and see how it does. It might fall apart fairly quickly. Okay, how do we tackle the Speaker situation? And uh, I noted that Weaver said that he's going to send a letter to the clerk and, and opt out as far as Green yeah. MLAs and advise Horgan to do the same. So, I mean, again, there's there's a lot of dominoes yet to fall, and we've got to see what the final picture looks like. But uh, how do we deal with the Speaker situation in such kind of a, a tenuous majority of 44 seats, regardless which party it falls to? Yeah, that's true, Shane, and and of course the Liberals could do the same thing if they're in opposition, not let any of their members stand mm. for Speaker. The reason it's a problem is because the Speaker of the Legislature presides over the legislature and makes judgment calls about decorum and disciplining members and all that, but the Speaker doesn't vote in most circumstances. So you have to give up one of your votes in some occasions without really having anything to offset it. It's true that the Speaker can come in and vote to break a tie and keep the government going, so ultimately you want that vote, but you can lose a lot of control over proceedings as well, and for that reason there's been speculation that one of the parties might ask somebody else to serve. The Greens have said, well, we wouldn't serve as Speaker to a Liberal government. Uh, The New Democrats probably wouldn't either, but flip it around to the scenario Keith just discussed. Uh, Christy Clark tells all of her members, put in a letter saying you won't serve as Speaker to the NDP. Let them manage the House. You know, it's. It, I think this is where t- Weaver may have tipped his hand, Shane, uh, uh, where he said, "I've advised my our, our members are telling are serving notice we're not going to serve as Speaker, and we're uh, suggesting the NDP do the same." Well. If you're suggesting the NDP do the same, that's, I think, based on the, the assumption that the Liberals are going to be there uh, in a situation not supported by the Greens. If he's giving advice to only one party, the NDP, not to serve as Speaker, I think that's where he's, he's casting his lot. He's, he's, he's sort of a, an alliance against the B.C. Liberals on the issue of who's going to be the Speaker. And uh, apart from the Speaker, there's also the position of what's called the, the Chairman of, or the Chair of the Committee of the Whole which is the body that sits in the House overseeing the actual uh, committee stage of legislation. The Speaker's not in the House there. So the governing party usually has to appoint a chair uh, to oversee those proceedings. Well, that suddenly tips, if if we're talking about a 44 situation or 43 situation, uh, that, that... it reduces your majority even more. You're sitting in the in the committee of the whole trying to pass legislation when arguably the other side actually will have more seats than you do because you've got two members uh, sidelined, one is speaker and one is uh, chair of the whole. So it becomes a, a real tough place to manage for whoever forms government with just 44 seats or, four, or, or 45 seats. All right, a lot more to dive into. Let's take a quick uh, break before uh, the next segment and more Keith and Vaughn on the other side here on Inside Politics on Radio NL. You're listening to Inside Politics on Radio NL. Once again, here's Shane Woodford. Thank you and welcome back. We're talking to Vaughn Palmer and Keith Baldry here on Inside Politics. Guys, you can always rely 
on one Harry Lally for a little excitement. Uh, he uh, telling the Ashcroft Journal uh, a little while ago that uh, the nomination process was, quote-unquote, a self-inflicted wound and that he was fighting a battle on two fronts, and good Lord, not even Napoleon can do that. Fun? I love Harry casting himself as Napoleon in it. But, uh, yeah, we were waiting to see how what Harry was going to say about losing this time because, as you know, when he lost last time, he blamed Adrian Dix and the flip-flop on Kinder Morgan. This time he's blaming John Horgan who went out and actively recruited somebody else to seek the NDP nomination against Harry, who backed uh, Aaron Sam, the chief of the Lower Nicola Indian Band. And Harry said that, you know, he spent nearly a year trying to get the nomination. He finally got it, and then he only had a few weeks to take on Jackie Teagard. So, you know, Harry's pretty outspoken and all that stuff, but I, I think he actually may be on to something here that the NDP did let that riding mm-hmm. go by letting it get into that nasty, embroiled battle instead of putting themselves behind Harry right from the beginning. Yeah, I can't disagree with the self-inflicted wound quote, uh, Keith. Yeah. And, you know, the NDP had two or three ridings in the province, Shane, where they had internal battles over the nomination. Columbia River Revelstoke, they lost there. Cowichan Valley, they lost there. Skeena, they lost there. And Fraser Nicholas. So they lost four seats where they had had pretty controversial and some nasty internal battles for their own nomination. I uh, interviewed Paul Ramsey, uh, former cabinet minister on the TV show that I do on the cable channel last night, Shane, and he said uh, he faults his party. They just, they got into such messes in these nomination fights that they undercut their own chances of winning in the general election. Yeah, and the NDP is known for that. Their their internal problems uh, dwarf the internal problems any other party has. Uh, a lot of uh, the central uh, office campaign cannot control the local writing associations who get into their own mess. They've got this, I think, ridiculous uh, gender equity uh, uh, policy when it comes to replacing politicians who retire. There have to be a candidate that fits a certain criteria in terms of minorities. It gets them into all sorts of needless problems, and as Vaughn says, it costs them potentially four seats. Uh, having said that, I think they lost Fraser Nicola and some of these other writings, uh, again, because of this, uh, the fact the NDP made a deliberate strategy of focusing on Metro Vancouver and becoming very much an urban green party and has sort of uh, cut itself off from what it used to be, which was a resource-driven, union-driven, private sector union-driven party that represented the parts of the north and the interior. They've really shrunk their appeal to really Metro Vancouver and the capital region of Vancouver Island and uh, sort of have cast off the rest of the province. You look at a map, electoral map of B.C., assign the writings, the colors of the writings, B.C. is a mass of red, of B.C. liberals, and uh, until you get to Metro Vancouver, then it becomes a ribbon of orange through the north side of Metro Vancouver, through parts of Vancouver, Burnaby, the Tri-Cities, and Surrey, where the election really was won or lost here. Uh, and uh, the NDP, for better or worse, have, have decided to appeal to that group of voters. The Liberals are very much outside of Metro, and we'll wonder if uh, either party can change to the point where it can start attracting voters in the regions it really doesn't represent. Yeah, ironically, uh, the letter uh, penned last night by five former NDP MLAs in Corky Evans, Jim Beatty, Tim pa- Tom Perry, Joan Swicky, and uh, David Zernheld. In there, I, it, was quite a, it was kind of funny because I, I noted there was a line in there about how proud they were of the NDP of the 90s for bridging the rural and urban divide. Uh, <laughs> And apparently they didn't look at the latest election result because that's certainly not the story of the day. No, that's really become unraveled, and it's a big change in our time in politics. Uh, Again, I dug out the old uh, 
election results, uh, the Dave Barrett NDP government in 72, the Mike Harcourt NDP government in 91, and the Glenn Clark NDP government in 96, about 30% of the caucuses in all those governments, Shane, were from the North and Interior. That party was, those governments were well represented in rural British Columbia, resource industries, and all that. John Horgan, if he forms a government at the end of next week, only 7% of his caucus will come from those areas. Mm-hmm. That's a massive shift in the history of that party, and I, you know, I, I think it creates a problem for the urban areas of the province relating to the importance of the rural areas, the resource development industries, and all that. Uh, one quick question to both of you before we uh, sign off to the bottom of the hour here, and I'm, I'm curious in, because I'm kind of relying on your expertise here, but on the official party status question, which Weaver pitched as an almost precondition in negotiations with both parties, how, how as far as the official kind of uh, machinations of getting that to happen, uh, is it is it an easy thing to do or is it a little more complicated? They have to uh, amend the uh, Constitution Act, the BC Constitution Act, which stipulates you have to have four seats, but I think both parties, are o- both Liberals and the NDP have signaled they're open to doing that. Interestingly, uh, on a pure dollar basis, the the uh, Greens would actually have more money for their budgets if they stuck to their three independent status, the way it's currently hmm. structured in the formula. But I think even that could be changed by all the parties uh, just to, uh, with the Legislative Management Committee that runs the legislature. They could change the formula to boost the Green vote. But uh, the Greens are in the driver's seat right now. Uh, they're going to get a few things that they want, and that includes official party status. He'll get party status. He should get party status. And if that were the biggest hurdle to clear, uh, uh, there wouldn't be any problem at all (laughs) dealing with the Greens. Uh, The interesting thing is, does he want some green things approved, or does he want, you know, to go for the big roll of the dice and get us to change the electoral system in a way that would suit the Greens most of all without going to a referendum? Yep. Interesting times ahead, guys. All eyes on next week. I'll talk to you next Friday. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye-bye, Shane. That's Keith Baldry and Vaughn Palmer on our Edge of the Ledge segment here on Inside Politics. We'll take a quick break to get to the news at the bottom of the hour with Bob Price on the other side. We're going to play a little pundit hockey with Elise Mills on the right wing, Bill Thielman on the left, which I guess puts me at center or perhaps defense, depending on how the conversation goes. More with on Inside Politics here on Radio NL right after the news at the bottom of the hour. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local. First. Keeping you informed from both sides. This is Radio NL's Inside Politics with Shane Woodford. Welcome back to Inside Politics. Uh, we're going one for two so far. i got Bill Thielman on the line. Bill, how are you? Bill, you there? I'm here. There you are. Uh, and uh, we're just waiting to hear from Elise. So until we get in touch with her, uh, we'll forge on uh, mano a mano, as it were. <laughs> I can always cover for her. <laughs> well, whether she would like you to do that is a whole other question uh bill how are you doing sir it's been a lo- it's been a little while i'm doing great thank you good uh so a bit of an interesting and unique situation we find ourselves in i, I know that you're pretty well connected uh, with the party what uh, what are you thinking here now that we're sort of a week out from the election result and of course all eyes in next week to see uh the final picture firms up but uh what's the thoughts what's going on behind the scenes well, Shane, it's not too often that you or I or other political observers can say something's happening now that happened before we were born in British Columbia politics, but that's exactly what we have. And, uh, you know, it's funny, I was talking to Tex Enemark, the veteran former deputy minister in several governments, and, and he said that he was a runner in the 1952 election uh, for the Conservative Party for his father that ended up with a minority government in W.A.C. Bennett beginning his term. And uh, so that's how far back it goes, 65 years to... 
to the last time we had this situation, and of course a long wait, and then figuring out who was actually in charge and what deals would be made, and what what kind of brokering is going on in the back rooms right now. So we really none of us uh, current. Uh, pundits and observers and media have uh, have seen this before, so it is a pretty common thing with minority governments and with minority governments the, the territory that comes with proportional representation, which is ironically one of the top items on the agenda for the Greens and and also for the NDP. So I think we're we're going to find a fascinating situation. And my view is, I think I don't know if you reported on on NL, but. Uh, uh, Kevin Milligan, the economist at UBC, did a million computer simulations mm-hmm. and came up with some numbers that suggested the most likely outcome is the numbers will stay the same for the legislative yep. distribution of seats. Uh, he said there was about a 25% chance the NDP would pick up one seat and a 10% chance the Liberals might pick up one seat. So that's uh, those are the major odds, and I'm you know I, I'm, I tend to say go with the favorite on that one that the numbers will stay the same. So uh, then the uh, the negotiations will begin in more in earnest, and we'll see what comes out of it. Um, I, I, as you know, I opposed the single transferable vote electoral system in both 2005 referenda and and 2009 referendum, and I'm still opposed to uh, the proportional representation system. So I'm just hoping we have a referendum. I think it would be wrong if if either the Liberals or the NDP uh, acquiesced. I think the Greens are wrong in suggesting we go forward with an entirely new system, not something that was not discussed what it even would be in advance of an election, and then say to the voters, hey, guess what, we just changed the electoral system indefinitely, and I uh, hope you like it. Um, that's just not the way a democracy should work. All right. Uh, good news. Uh, we're now joined online by Elise Mills. Elise, how are you? I'm good. I'm so sorry. No, it's all good. I'm glad you're here. Uh, I was just talking to Bill and kind of getting his thoughts uh, from the left as far as uh, the result and the situation we find ourselves in, and of course all eyes in next week when when the last of the dominoes falls, and hopefully we get some kind of a firm picture barring judicial recounts or any other wrinkle. But uh, what are your thoughts on on the sort of the other side of the spectrum, and what are you hearing behind the scenes? Well, I I, I personally don't think a heck of a lot is going to change. I think uh, uh, the B.C. Liberals uh, are putting a lot of stock on what's going to happen with Comox uh, uh, and the recount there and and, but I think we're going to be stuck. I think this, the feeling is, at least on this side of the fence, is that we are going to be in pretty much the same situation that we are now. And I think a lot of BC Liberals have already begun to move forward and what that looks like. Uh, a little bit of uh, going on what Bill was just talking about that I was able to hear. You know, the negotiations. Uh, uh, there is a there is an argument w- uh, within the party right now about how much you negotiate with the Greens. Um, I know Mr. Weaver would like uh, the BC Liberals to amend the budget uh, to include some of his pet projects, and that list seems to be growing every single day. Mm-hmm. Uh, proportional representation is not going to be on the table, um, but obviously the legislation around foreign and corporate and union donations will be, which I think is a great idea. I've never understood why we didn't move on that yep. uh, in some form, uh, some capacity. Um, but I think BC Liberals like myself are asking, uh, and, and this is where Bill and I connect on our ideologies is that NDPers and, and conservatives or, or blue liberals like uh, the coalition's made up of, um, we're very ideologically driven in certain parts of the policy, whether it's fiscal policy and for the NDP it would be social policy. I think there's a lot of us that would rather die on the sword uh, than, than remove the soul, heart and soul of the party by negotiating ourselves away from where we stand traditionally. 
But uh, I think there are some B.C. Liberals that believe that it's important to maintain power, that uh, it's important for B.C. Liberals to still have the advantage on, on, uh, in government as to where we're going economically in this province, and that the economic situation uh, is still, I think, globally, uh, and that riskiness still affects us. I, I agree with that. But, uh, and they believe, therefore, any sort of negotiation or compromise is good for the, for the province. Again, there's BC Liberals like myself saying, well, how far do you go? How far do you let Mr. Weaver, who is literally a man with an island, on an island, with two other MLAs, um, drive the, the focus of the BC Liberal government and the, the work we've done fiscally in this province? Yeah, I guess when it comes to the three deal breakers, uh, proportional representation, uh, and then, uh, and to some degree, Trans Mountain Pipeline and the Site C Dam, when it comes to those three things, uh, I don't know, Bill, if, if the Greens can find common ground with the B.C. Liberals. Maybe it maybe just doesn't happen. Well, uh, it's interesting, Shane, that you said those are the three deal-breakers, because those weren't the deal-breakers when we started. The no, not at all. <laughs> with Dr. Mr. Weaver. Uh, listen, uh, the, he, so many things have changed. I, I'm, uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm at, at risk of uh, uh, inflaming the negotiations, I guess, but uh, this is kind of like a Trumpian sort of situation where you, you don't know what ground you stand on. Mr. Weaver said he wouldn't be the chief negotiator, then he appointed himself the chief negotiator. He said there were two deal-breakers. One was removing big money, corporate and union donations, mm-hmm. and the other was official party status. And I think that uh, on those two, I would agree with him 100%. I have no problem with them getting party status. I have no, and, I, and I've supported for a long time, and the NDP have supported for a long time, removing big money. And I think that is probably the most significant thing that's got to change. And I think that that's something where there are liberals like Elise and Kevin Falcon and others who have said that, that, that they have problems with, uh, maybe not this, I do, but certainly there's a lot of room for maneuver <coughs> on, on doing that. Uh, and doing what other, almost every other province has done. I mean, we've just seen it in Ontario. Alberta's done it. Federally, we've done it. So it, it's time to, to end that. But when you get to PR, this is one, one unusual place where at least, and I think are 100% in agreement, there is no way, in my view, that any parties in the legislature should entertain the idea of changing our electoral system without getting the approval of the voters. And it, it is not like a budget. It is not like a, a program or a, an expenditure. Mm. It is the way in which we are governed and governed for an indefinite period of time. And so that, I think, things like that in the Constitution, if you want to change the Constitution, require the voters' approval through a simple democratic referendum. It's not that complicated to figure out. So I, I find, uh, and, and Elise might agree with me as well, we've now got the smallest party in the legislature deciding what, who the premier will be, what the plan will be, what the budget will be, what the program of the legislature will be, and what, what pieces of legislation will be passed. And that the problems I have with proportional representation is it gives inordinate power to parties that have had the least support of the, of the voters. Hmm. It, I, it, to just jump on this, Shane, yeah, and it, I absolutely agree with Bill. And I think, uh, you know, Bill and I were talking about this after the election. If you looked at the numbers that the Green Party has actually re- received, uh, percentage of vote across the board, uh, and you compare that to where the NDP and the BC Liberals traditionally are, nobody would be cheering us along and saying, you know, look at the amazing gains you've made. That's not necessarily the case. I also think this is an anomaly in BC politics, like we saw with Gordon Wilson and his 
party uh, back in 1996. But I, I agree with Bill. Um, and my question to Mr. Weaver is, have you been paying attention federally? We have a prime minister who tried to sell democratic reforms three times and failed miserably. Canadians generally are not interested, the majority of them are not interested in changing the way that we vote. We've had this debate in British Columbia. There are far Twice. bigger fish to fry in this province right now. And Bill's right. This list with Mr. Weaver is growing. It is very Trump-like. You know, the, the goalposts are constantly shifting. And I feel like uh, Ms. Clark, uh, and it would be the same way for Mr. Horgan, are, are sort of held hostage to this guy that's got three seats on an island. Um, we also have something I think is far more important, and Bill and I have talked about this before, and I believe this is where we also do, do agree, um, is that this province is incredibly divided. And it's going to take real leadership, not a list of pet projects, but real leadership to forge an agreement and understanding between two populations in this province and to break down the mythology and not use it for your own political advantage. That's what this province needs right now. Mr. Weaver should be speaking on those notes versus this ever-growing list of demands. All right, well, let's talk leadership. Uh, Kevin Falcon's comments a little while ago raised some issues, and you probably weren't listening because I'm sure you were busy on your own panels on election night, but I had Terry Lake on here, and as, as the results started kind of becoming clearer where we were headed, uh, he too brought up the fact that this is going to probably bring question marks down and not one but both leaders, depending on how it shakes out. So uh, we'll start with Christy Clark. Uh, does the long-term planning for the BC Liberals include Christy Clark or no? With saying that with the fact that neither party has the luxury of a leadership convention at the moment. Well, I think uh, there's a real problem for Christy Clark. I said I thought that she was just done after election night, and I think any time you have a party leader who goes into an election with a strong majority, uh, the strongest economy in Canada, four successive balanced budgets, all the advantages of incumbency, spending massive amounts of government money on partisan self-serving ads, plus the most massively corporately funded campaign in probably in Canadian history for a provincial government, uh, and loses the majority, then I'd say that the, this was a referendum on Christy Clark and the vote was no. The Liberals have barely hung on by their toenails, and I think that the, you know, Kevin Falcon's comments were measured, but, and I completely agreed with him. I think he was being a good analyst. He was on CBC uh, TV uh, along with Elise and I uh, on separate panels. And so I, I think there's other people coming out. Chris Olson, her former press secretary, was criticizing some of the elements of the campaign. And I'd have to say, and not to put Elise on the spot, but I'd have to say that the, the premiers, uh, if, we, if we are definitely into a minority, uh, it'll be challenging for the premier. And if we're into a minority where John Horgan is the premier, she's finished completely. Elise, do you agree oh. or no? Well, so starting, I'll start with our constitution. I mean, we are there. There, I don't see any path forward uh, within the next twelve months to be able to yeah. go and and reach agreement and put down uh, the necessary requirements to engage or enact a leadership convention. Yeah. I also don't see anybody in this new group of BC Liberals, those who are recently elected and those who have been around, that could possibly maintain or carry uh, leadership. Uh, could inspire the party, uh, could could receive the uh, the same level of support that Gordon Campbell and Christy Clark have. We also are a relatively new party. This is a party that uh, came about in 1991, um, shifted its focus to be more of a social credit party in 1995 with the arrival of Gordon Campbell. This party uh, is too young to fail, as far as I'm concerned. It's been too successful of a brand to fail. 
so this gets back to the question of leadership. I don't disagree with Chris Olson. I agree with Kevin Falcon's, uh, as Bill said, measured remarks. I think he has to be careful uh, in, in what he says as well. But um, the membership right now, I haven't heard a lot of conversation about leadership. I think everybody's waiting to see what the outcome is. Yeah. But I do think that if you're going to take credit for a massive majority in 2013 and say that this was your leadership, you also have to take the responsibility of what I don't see as a win. I see it as a loss. Um, when I look at those Surrey writings, which I and myself and many others have spent years and years cultivating that support out there, um, uh, whether I see that also, uh, you know, on the North Shore, uh, North Vancouver, for example, it's shocking to me that the message that we've traditionally been able to carry did not sell. And I do think, in some part, this is a referendum on Christy Clark's leadership, uh, because every party knows this. The leader becomes the voice of the brand, the pit. The, the image of the brand. And we have to look at this. And it, I think it's very unclear, though, right now, how the B.C. Liberals uh, move forward with or without Christy Clark, because there's this little matter of our party constitution. There's also the larger matter of what our grassroots wants. All of us are here, whether it's the pundits, the MLAs, or the leader, we're all here at the will of the, grass, uh, the grassroots members. All right. Uh, guys, uh, we need to take a quick break, but I want to move to the province next door when, we're, when we get back on the other side of it. Some more with Elise Mills and Bill Thielman here on Inside Politics on Radio NL right after this break. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local. First. You're listening to Inside Politics on Radio NL. Once again, here's Shane Woodford. Welcome back. We're talking to Elise Mills and Bill Thielman. Uh, guys, uh, in Alberta, an interesting situation developed yesterday when the Progressive Conservatives and the Wild Rose uh, basically formed what they're calling the United Conservative Party. Uh, Jason Kenney and Brian Jean, of course, pulling the trigger on that. So uh, the question to pose here is, A, uh, will that be sold as far as ratification among the members? And if it is, uh, what kind of problems does that pose or not uh, to the NDP and Rachel Notley? I'll start with you, Bill. Well, it'll definitely pose a big problem if, if that's the case. And I, if I recall, I'm just going back on my memory on here, and maybe at least will know more than I do, because um, she cares more about conservatives than I do. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they, I, I believe that the Conservative Party voted uh, narrowly in favor, like just, just over 50%. So it wasn't a, a resounding uh, vote of support for that. But I think there's still a lot of problems. There are a lot of uh, progressive conservatives who don't think Jason Kennedy, uh, Kenny is anywhere near progressive um, and have questions about the conservative part. And, you know, he's been a, a Wildrose supporter, etc. And he took over the party, and, and he obviously he's a good organizer and all those kind of things. But it's one thing to put a party together. Uh, it's another thing to make it into a real entity that actually works together. So we'll have to see. Uh, I think, uh, I mean, I would have to say Albert is a conservative party or um, province for a long time. If if they unify solidly and have a good candidate as our leader and a, a good platform, they don't have too many kind of uh, right-wing loonies in, in their line, line up when they go to the election, then they should be able to win. But that said, I you know I think Rachel Notley is one of the most impressive premiers in the country. I think she's done an admirable job in difficult circumstances. She's made a couple of, of uh, unforced error mistakes early on, but um, for a government that had literally no one with gov- direct government experience and and only four members of the legislature before that, uh, they've done remarkably well. And um, I think they've got some very innovative stuff going on for an energy province on trying to deal with the transition away from their biggest industry in a way which is sensible and, and kind of a model for others. All right, Elise, over to you. 
Well, we're, you know, those conservatives and myself included are pretty good at bringing two conservative groups together and uh, Mm -hmm. making quite a formidable party and then coming in and and getting one of the greatest majorities a a party has ever seen, like in 2011. When you think about the transition of the Conservative Party of Canada uh, from two parties, from Reform and Progressive Conservative, and then you you watch the process. I mean, it's quite a short period of time of when everybody came together, Stephen Harper is elected leader, and the 2011 massive majority happens. I think Bill is sort of going on a wish and a prayer that uh, lightning won't strike twice, but I disagree. I think lightning is about to strike twice. And, you know, when you look at the polls that the media outlets are having, the Alberta-based media outlets are having, I mean, you're talking, so a sample size, for example, was one of the the radio stations out there was 2,700 Albertans. 404 said they would still support the NDP. 1,852 said they would would, uh, come vote and support a united Conservative Party, no matter the leader. That tells you that probably much like, and to a lesser degree, what's happened in BC with the Greens, what's happening happened to the NDP in Alberta is an anomaly. Um, and I don't think they've done this phenomenally great job. And they have had the issue of having quite a few left-wing loonies and a sort of bozo eruptions that have taken place. Um, but I do, I do agree with Bill. Rachel Notley is is a is a is a surprise to me in in the sense that she's got a very good understanding of leadership. I don't agree with her policies. I don't agree with her ideology. But when I just take a step back and look at through a nonpartisan lens, she's she's a measured uh, and, and, and strong politician. Will she survive? I don't think so. I think it's a one-term NDP government there. But um, I, I'm not concerned about the process of going forward of picking a new leader. Will there be any issues? No. Conservatives know how to do this. And we know that when we unite we form government. So we have, Alberta has some top-line issues that are actually national issues as well, and I think what Albertans are worried about is that their voice is becoming lost. We also have um, a second narrative that's running uh, smack into the Alberta conversation, which is what's happened with Justin Trudeau this week. You know, he, uh, Calgary uh, lost the infrastructure bank. Calgary's lost the power and control and location of the National Energy Board with the assumption that, like Justin Trudeau said, there's no scientific proof. But I will say this, I think there's probably too much bias in Calgary, and we have to move the National Energy Board closer to Toronto. Everything went to Toronto this week, and and that hurts the West. And the West is not going to put up with the same behavior that they've had to put up with before from Liberal Prime Ministers. The West doesn't just want in, the West deserves to be in, and I think that's actually going to also help the United Conservative Party in its growth forward in picking a new leader and also being able to present a very strong force in the next provincial election, which is less than two years away. Well, in fairness, Toronto's never going to get a Stanley Cup, so you got to give them something. Uh, <laughs> well, that's true. I, and if they do, I have to leave the country because I won't be able to manage yeah. the coverage, Shane. It's really, too much. We're right up against the wall, but really, really quick, uh, I'll, I'll just go to you, Bill, really first. On the NDP federal leadership race, uh, uh, Jagmeet Singh jumping in there. What's your read on that real quick? Well, to clarify, the United Conservative Party, uh, the PCs need 50% approval and Wild Rose needs 75%. I mis- I misremembered that, just to clarify for your listeners. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah I've never uh, met Mr. Singh. I haven't heard from him. I heard about him fairly recently, so he's got a, a large way to go. Um, he seems to be the member from GQ, and so I'm not sure if it's going to be the biggest <laughs> qualification or not, but he's obviously getting a lot of buzz, and that's something that uh, the only other guy I know who's done that is Trudeau. So I'm, I'm open to uh, I'm open to all options right now, but I'm, I'm certainly thinking that without any federal experience, and I, I have no idea what he stands for beyond uh, 
Peace and love. All right. Uh, real quick, at least over to the conservative leadership race, which votes next week. Uh, can anybody beat Maxime Bernier? I think it will be very difficult. I mean, I'm packing up ready to go to Toronto myself next week, and I think it's going to be very difficult to to be able to swerve, anyone to be able to beat uh, Maxime Bernier. I think the question then becomes, how does Maxime Bernier start to put his shadow cabinet together? How does he begin to put his mark on the party? The party right now, I don't believe, has a particularly uh, strong executive. I don't know what happened there if we were sort of in a coma and didn't realize who we were, you know, after in the Vancouver Convention. It was shortly after the 2015 uh, campaign, and I think we were all sort of shell-shocked and moving forward. But uh, the party needs to strengthen on several fronts, and I think Maxime Bernier's team, coupled with the additions that he's brought in from Kevin O'Leary's team, who, by the way, are some of the best communicators and strategists in politics in this country, I think it's going to be quite a phenomenal team, but he's going to have to do some uh, outreach with uh, groups that, say, uh, were supportive of Aaron O'Toole, Lisa Raitt, uh, and Michael Chong to a lesser degree. All right. Uh, Bill, uh, Elise, thank you so much. Uh, Time never goes by faster than when I'm talking to you guys. I always wish I could just (laughs) tack on another 30 minutes or so. Uh, But your insight and hearing your voices, uh, thanks so much. I appreciate it. That's because we don't leave you any time. (laughs) (laughs) I look forward to getting you back on if you're open to that. Okay, sure. Excellent. I'd love it. Okay. Elise, Bill, thank you. And that's it for Inside Politics. We'll see you here uh, on NL next week when, hopefully, fingers crossed, we may just have a final result in the provincial election. Maybe. Here on Inside Politics next week. See that. The Valley's first choice for local news. CHNL. 610 AM in Kamloops and streaming online at RadioNL.com.